Hello, I'm Daniel Wahl, author of Designing Regenerative Cultures, and you're listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast. And I'm Josie Borden, Head of Regenerative Design at the RSA. In this series, we explore how regenerative practice is helping people in place to collectively redesign their communities, cities and economies and create a thriving home for all on our planet. You're listening to a special series that asks how we can build a flourishing future for the long term. This is Regeneration Rising, brought to you by the RSA. Hello and welcome to the Regeneration Rising podcast. I'm Josie Warden and this is episode seven in our seven-part series. Over the last half century, as we have better understood the impact of modern living on our planet, ideas about how we should respond to climate change have also been evolving. In this series, we've heard from key thinkers about what they are doing to pursue more sustainable practices. And today we're joined by Paul Hawkin, one of the environmental movement's leading voices, to hear his perspectives on how and why the movement is embracing regenerative thinking. Paul is a pioneering architect of corporate reform with respect to ecological practices. He is a well-respected author, economist and activist, and the founder of Project Drawdown, a non-profit dedicated to researching when and how global warming can be reversed. He has written eight best-selling books, including the hugely influential The Ecology of Commerce. Paul, welcome. We're incredibly grateful that you're here with us today. You're a key thinker in the environmental movement and have really seen how it's changed over time. Your most recent book is called Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. What motivated you to write this and why is this shift to regeneration resonating so strongly with you? Uh, what a great question. I think there's two, at least two vectors there. One is that the reason I'm a writer is to learn and writing is about curiosity to me. It's a, and, and good journalism is about not knowing as opposed to, I know you don't listen up. That's not good journalism. So that was born from my childhood where I lived in a home that wasn't a home. It wasn't safe inside. And so I spent a lot of time outside where I felt safe and the thing about outdoors and indoors, though, is an indoors, a child can master a house like a light switch, refrigerator, TV. We didn't have one, of course, but nevertheless, I mean, you can master that in 20 minutes if you're a three-year-old, but you can't master what's going on outside for 10 lifetimes, no matter how old you are. And it was such a real difference in piquing my curiosity all the time. You know, what's that? What's that noise? What's crawling away? You know, what's that berry? What's that leaf? What's that tree? What's that? what's happening and looking up in the sky as well. So that's the birth of seeing the environmental movement as actually the earth, you know, not as some negotiation (laughs) between those that are destroying the earth and, and, and those that wanted to destroy it a little bit less. And I think for me, regeneration was born of seeing the climate conversation be so siloed and It's understandable in a way because almost 80% of greenhouse gas emissions are from combustion, coal, gas, and oil. And so the focus has been intently on those factors and contributors to global warming. But in the process, I mean, there's a lot of tacit assumptions in there, which is that if we get the energy right, that is we move to renewables, 
that we get a hall pass, you know, to the 22nd century, that it's going to be okay, that we've kind of got, we're on top of it. And it's just simply not true. And so I think the greenhouse gas situation has overwhelmed or obscured the fact that we're actually losing life on earth, that the earth itself is degenerating and it's degenerating due to human activity. And that human activity is primarily due to an economic system that's extractive. It takes, I mean, that's what extractive means. But what does it take? Well, it takes life. It removes life from the planet in either directly or indirectly, such as mining. So for me, the purpose of writing Regeneration and sort of putting it out there, I mean, Daniel's way ahead of us on this one, but was to actually provide a lens and a framework that opened up both the understanding of what was going on, but also the possibility of what we could do collectively as homo sapiens. And I felt that the climate conversation so infused with lingo and jargon and acronyms and so forth was actually keeping people away from understanding their role, their responsibility, but their possibility in how they could interact with society, with their cities, with their communities, with the countryside, with nature, of course, itself, with water, with forests, with animals, with their food systems clothing, etc., in such a way that it began to honor life instead of take it away. So that's what I, I love about regeneration. And I realize the word has now become a weasel word, <laughs> which is people are using it rather easily. But the fact is that it's a beautiful term. I was wondering, the first talk that you gave at Bioneers entitled Regeneration predates quite a few of the books that have been written on regeneration. So you've actually been trying out the meme quite early on with people and somehow it didn't resonate. And, and now it's suddenly caught on in the last few years. Why, why do you think that is? That's a very good question. I mean, when I gave that talk at, at Bioneers, it was presaged, you know, obviously, I mean, where I was thinking, I knew when I was doing Drawdown that Regeneration was a sequel. There was no question in my mind. And what I decided to do with Drawdown was to stay in my lane. Okay, what's my lane? I felt that at that time, and in fact, since 2001, I've been talking sort of like Diogenes, you know, looking around for the list of solutions with somebody tell me what they are, you know. And so Drawdown was really a default, in a sense, mode to do what had not been done, which is so obvious, you know, that the IPCC and universities, institutions, whatever, should have been doing this a long time ago, which is just do the math. This is cause, this is, if we reduce this, it has this effect. If we do this, it has a positive effect. I mean, just do the math. But I always knew, even before it was published and before it was finished, that Regeneration was the next book. And Regeneration for me was really about, I could say, opening up the vista, the possibility, the vision, you know, the, the, but really to open up that sense of intricate, mystical, almost, but mysterious, amazing interconnectivity and interpenetration of the living world, which gets lost, you know, when you're just talking about you know, EVs and, you know, solar panels, you know, and things like that. It's unintentionally reductionist. And furthermore, if I may say, the language around climate took on war metaphors is if climate, and so the, 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 the conversation around climate was an othering conversation. 
that you're going to fight it. You're going to combat climate change. You're going to tackle climate change. You know, you're going to mitigate it. You know, but it's an it. And I, and you know, where's that it? There's no it out there. You know, so that to me also was the reason, or one of the reasons anyway, that 98% of humanity is disengaged. They don't do anything about the greatest threat civilization has ever faced and may ever, if it persists. And half of them know very well that, you know, it's anthropogenic, that it's here, it's affecting them, it's having impact, etc. But they don't do anything. And I think partly that's due to the fact that it was placed out there somewhere, and then it made an individual or a community or church or synagogue or college or class or whatever feel like there was very little they could do. You know, the, the elements that were at play impacting climate uh, were out of their control. That only big companies or big international institutions or the conference of the parties or things that were, you know, the Biden administration, whatever, you know, somehow they had the ha their hands on the levers that could change this, you know, which is only slightly true, but partially true. And so again, it was another factor in, in wanting to go to regeneration, which is to kind of do a figure ground shift on that one, to understand that basically regeneration is not a borrowed language. It's not a buzzword. It is not a concept. It is innate to being a human being. It's innate to all living systems. It's why we're here. Every cell in our body is doing it right now, all 37 trillion cells to regenerate right this second. And maybe emotionally or and socially to show or to offer back to people what they know, which is that when you care, whether a child or a plant or an animal or a place, Whenever you care about it, those things, you are in the act of regeneration. That's what caring is. <laughs> and so we know this. We know how to do this. It's innate to being a human being as opposed to, wow, I got to change my car. Okay. <laughs> Swap out my car, you know, something I can't afford. I mean, fine. That's not, I'm not putting down EVs. I'm just saying is that it opens it back up to a way of understanding and seeing the world that everybody can partake in. When the news of freak climate events pretty much on every continent are just coming hard and fast, and even the scientific data is coming hard and fast, that we might be pushing that point of no return, runaway climate change. Where do you sit with regard to active hope on all of this? How urgent is this? And if we did leave it too late, where would we be then? How do we live as a species that has to recognize that we've caused runaway climate change and degradation of the Earth's systems, cascading ecosystems collapse, and still live a few generations in that knowledge. Yeah, there's just a lot of things to take in there. The rate of disruption that is occurring due to climatic events, weather, is interesting because we know now, particularly because of the sixth assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, that heating and increases in greenhouse gases are linear. It's a one for one. And that wasn't actually known or fully satisfied in terms of the science. And now it is. What isn't linear, of course, is weather. <laughs> and so the response to a warming ocean and warming air, which is really the matrix of weather, 
is more Lamarckian or asymptotic. I mean, we don't know, you know, because it's so much, it's so surprising. We don't understand the dynamics fully. But I mean, nobody is actually telling the truth in a sense on both sides, which is that the changes in, in weather, let's call them weather, are locked in for at least 30 years. It's almost nobody steps back and actually says that. And I, and I think I understand why it's because when the original science was coming out from climatologists, they, and I was around, I was at Stanford Research Institute in the seventies and I was schooled in climate. And everything I learned then is true now. I mean, we knew the basics, we knew the fundamentals, we knew the dynamics perfectly then. And, but what happened is that science did not feel it was being heard and it was not, by the way. And so what happened is they use the term future existential threat, you know, and threat implies fear. And so threat and fear were used as a way to try to motivate or to wake up people to what was happening, this dynamic. And then that was followed really almost on Earth Day itself, you know, in 1970 with activists. What activists used was blame and shame and guilt. <laughs> they tried to make people bad about it. You know, the car companies and you're killing the earth and so forth. So now we have, you know, fear, threat, shame, blame, guilt, you know, all stir well. So science learned actually to sort of just speak in kind of monotone. <laughs> and, and like, this is this, this is this. And it really wasn't heard. I mean, it wasn't very publicizable. So the fact is that what you, the statement innate in your question is actually sort of being ignored. And the specific incidents of climatic impact are not, of course, because what we see right now is this conceptual understanding of climate change, as they call it, uh, which I don't think is a good term, by the way, but uh, global warming, uh, the impact of it is now becoming experiential for more and more people. And that is a sea change in humanity. And I see it in CEOs and I see it in cab drivers. I mean, I see it everywhere when I talk to people and listen and see what's happening is that that shift, you know, which is, oh my gosh, you know, or, or holy, whatever, you know, just this sense of like, and the dawning realization that this is here to stay. And I think there's still a kind of a tacit belief that people have that, well, this is the way it's going to be. Well, no, it's not the way it's going to be right now. And who wants to be the person like, it's like chicken little, you know, who wants to be the person who go out there and from the rooftop and say, you know, this is just the beginning. It's going to get so much more worse. How do you feel about that? I mean, that's not a good message, even if it's true. And so I'm not interested about hope. It's, it's a word I never use because I think it's useless because hope is the mask of fear. And you can't have hope unless you're afraid that something is going to happen or will happen. And I hope that, but what do you hope? Why are you hoping? And so I think what we need is fearlessness, which is got it, got it. Now let's just go, let's work. We, we got the problem, thank you science. Now let's draw a bright line. Now let's go act, do, you know, rather than hope for change because hope and almost puts it outside of yourself, you know, puts it onto other people, other institutions. And we want those people and institutions to be functional and do things, no question about it, but we don't want to hope for it because that's disempowering to ourselves and to our sense of agency. 
There seems to me to be a different quality about a conversation about net zero and a conversation about regeneration. There's no doubt that we need to drastically cut our emissions, no doubt. But the image that net zero conjures up is sometimes one of neutrality, that the best a human can be is neutral to have no impact. But regeneration, on the other hand, talks about humans adding to life and to life's potential. That's a very different message. Is that why it's resonating with people, do you think? Well, it should connect to people. <laughs> Life should. <laughs> you know, even, even a soldier that volunteers for Ukraine and, you know, goes to the front lines and puts his or her life at risk, you know, is actually about being alive. Because for them, they are quintessentially alert and alive and aware. And, and they're doing something, in that case, that is transcendent of their own existence. And it's really about preserving life for others. And so that impulse that we have, you know, particularly seen in that kind of context, but it's ubiquitous in all we do is to take care of our own life and then take care of those of the life around us. Now, have we lost the understanding of how to do that? Absolutely. No question about it. We've been diseducated and miseducated and propagandized and advertised and commercialized by corporations, frankly. So that we've come to believe that if we do X and Y and Z, you know, that somehow we're going to have a better life uh, or that we'll be healthy or we'll be happy, you know. And it's so interesting to me that three of the most valuable companies in the world are all about increasing consumption. And that's Google and that's Facebook Meta, you know, which is all about consumption. And just being better advertisers, you know, more pinpoint ways to uh, stimulate consumption or people's desire to consume. And what's interesting about the proposals and, and Cairo coming up for the conference of the parties and what's left out of the conversation, of course, is consumption. I mean, there's a lot of other things left out of the conversation, but just obvious it's like net zero kind of, I find it kind of a, a interesting concept, you know, net zero, right? Then what? In 2050 by, you know, having, was it 450 parts per million in terms of greenhouse gases at that time is called climate chaos. It's not called a climate crisis. This is the chaos. It's absolutely chaotic. So this goal is to get to a point where it's climate chaos. You know, I think, oh, what an interesting goal. Nobody's talking about what that means, you know. And then that's why I did drawdown, because the, the drawdown is, so it peaks and goes down. It's about reversal, not about hitting this point where, okay, we're in that zero, we're cool. We're not cool at all. And so, again, you know, by sort of putting it out into the common lingo, you know, about corporate goals and in a sense, it's reductionist, it's, it's, it's enclosing. It's like the enclosure movement in a new way, you know, it encloses our, our minds, you know. So our understanding of life and our reverence for life and so forth, again, is something that has been, I think, fiddled with or distorted by commerce, by business, and by politicians, you know. Because politics uses fear as a motivating factor and fear is about harm and coming to you and uh, vote for me and this won't happen or I'll stop it from happening. And so I think the conversation about the living world and about life and our own life and our connection to it has really been smashed and fractured by 
all the inputs that come at us or that we voluntarily bring to us, but nevertheless coming at us. And so we don't have a really a real conversation about reverence, about the sacredness of life. And and I've talked about indigeneity and regeneration. When you look at those cultures and you look at the language and you look at the songs and the rituals and the understandings that they had, they arose from people whose very existence depended on their understanding of where they lived and they knew where they lived they understood that place on earth and that understanding and those understandings uh, developed and became more refined and were passed on generation after generation you know five thousand ten thousand up to fifty thousand years ago so that knowledge which was basically uh, in in memory in the hippocampus it was in stories in song in ritual in art but it was actually in a sense the the conveyance to each successive generation of what life meant these are cultures that had no word for nature semantically it didn't make sense to separate it you know if we say it's all connected which we do you know it, we just disconnected it <laughs> I think that feeling of innateness is something that many people would certainly agree with, but you're right about it being fractured, particularly, I guess, in Western dominant cultures. And that conversation about life, where does that happen anymore? Yeah, I, I spent um, longer than I should have on the wonderful, beautiful website of regeneration.org that you've put together. And what struck me was that quite early on, um, one of the things to click on is bioregions. And for me, that speaks a little bit in the direction of like, you asked me, have I been to the last COP? And I haven't because I've given up on that process. I really don't uh, feel that the carbon myopic approach to responding to climate chaos is actually Camilla Moreno, the Brazilian researcher, put it really well. She she's, um, wrote a book just after Paris, um, or a paper um, with the Heinrich Böll Foundation just after Paris, that was called Carbon Metrics, Global Abstractions and Ecological Epistemicide. What a powerful word. And she was critiquing that by combining the digitalization and big data agenda with the climate change agenda, the only actors able to do anything is what you were saying earlier, is big state actors and large companies. And new ways or ancient ways of being and, and seeing the world. We, we spoke with Anne Polina, who challenged us to be brave out of a culture that has 65,000 years of knowledge of how to live carefully in place. For me, the notion of us re-inhabiting the earth as expressions of earth rather than as owners of a piece of land is at the core of us realigning with life's regenerative pattern. And the maps that we call up when we close our eyes and imagine the atlas are sociopolitical maps of the era of empire, of the era of nation states. The bioregional map that is linked to on your website gives you a living map of real biogeophysical reality that people had to fit into, that they needed to know their place. So slightly long-winded question, what are the other structure-drive behavior issues that we need to overcome? Like, is, is it our scale is completely wrong? Our governance systems are completely ineffective? You mentioned overconsumption. I'm really glad you did because 
right now there's this push towards overpopulation being the blame. But nobody speaks about the fact that it's the 10% that ridiculously overconsume that cause the damage and not the 90% that don't even have the wherewithal to join that overconsuming lot. Um, where do you see the, the key intervention points and, and how important do you think is this coming home into our bioregions and learning to heal ecosystems place by place again? What I see happening is that we're being homeschooled. We got bad schooling. Now we're being homeschooled and it's mom, you know, it's earth, it's, you know, that's who's schooling us. And so the disruptions and what's happening, you know, and the suffering is causing, which I don't want anybody to suffer. But the fact is that the disruptions in water, heat, drought, you know, cyclonic disturbances, wind, by the way, people don't talk enough about in many other ways are basically feedbacks. There are feedbacks from a system. The earth is one system and any system that ignores feedback perishes. And so we've been ignoring it and now it's getting harder to ignore. And so the way I see things right now is that feedback like that is an offering. It's a gift. It's not like a curse or again, I'm not trying to, you know, romanticize, you know, a drought or a flood or a cyclone or dislocation or death or not. I'm just saying, but as the earth as a whole doesn't listen to us, doesn't know what we think. It just is. And so this is feedback and this feedback is coming in. And as you mentioned earlier, very eloquently, it's going to increase in terms of the rate at which that feedback is going to occur. And the question is, are we going to understand it? Do we hear it? Are we going to respond? Are we going to act on it or not? And so more are, but it's not enough to actually arrest the uh, momentum uh, of what's happening right now. So to me, what's happening now is an opening not a closure. It's a closure of one system of understanding and being in the world, which is called neoliberal Western capitalism and all the different words you have for, we have for this extractive system, you know, which enslaved people, which caused deracination, which is, as you said, it's not just the map that shows that, but I mean, it's the, the harm that this Western system has uh, placed upon the world is, is incalculable. But right now it's feedback, you know, and there's been a lag time. Yes, there's been a lag time, but the feedback is very real. And I just think that uh, what you're seeing around the world is the growth of organizations, people, existing organizations, not cultures, for example, who are coming to the fore again, indigenous people around the world, their voices and their understandings, but also, you know, obviously NGOs and community organizations and so forth. What you're seeing is people to me rehearsing the future. And in a sense, like they're figuring out what to do and how to live here. Uh, some people already knew how, by the way, and are trying to restore those cultural ways. But what you're seeing all over the world is in, in agriculture and farming, of course, but in, in social relationships, in, in the built environment, in, in sharing economies and consumption. In, in so many ways, you're seeing people try to figure out what it means to be here now and how we can be here in a, in a way that will exist far into the future. And so I think as the disruptions become more pronounced, and they are and will be, no question about it, then it's kind of like, who do you turn to? If something, if you have a toothache, you know, and you go, oh my God, or whatever, who do you turn to? You turn to somebody who knows more about it than you do, which is called your dentist. <laughs> and 
So this is true about us. When we can't figure out what to do or what's going on within our body or something, we turn, almost always we turn to somebody. It could be a religious leader, it could be our pastor, it could be a rabbi, it could be a psychologist, it could be a consultant, it could be a doctor, it could be a healer, it could be a spiritual. We turn to those who have walked a path before us and know more. And so that is, if, if there's a, a basis for the word hope, which I don't use, is to see the ingenuity and the brilliance and the imagination of human beings, you know, being expressed right now, today, all over the world. And this is regeneration. You know, people are actively, practically doing it on a day-to-day basis, you know. So that is what provides you with the sense that we go through a rite of passage here. This is a civilizational rite of passage. The question is, how will we come out? You know, and it's not that we come out on the other side, but I mean, how will we, who will we be and what will we have experienced and what will be the tenets and the organizing principles and the understandings that inform us when we are in 2100? That's going to be a really interesting question. And, but we're all together here figuring this one out. That's for sure. With regard to the step from drawdown to regeneration the the new book some people misunderstood drawdown as as i hear a hundred solutions that we just need to scale up and get out there and then everything will, will be fine but a lot of people in the regeneration movement point out that in order to heal places and our relationship to place everything has to be specific to local place and local culture And what's the sweet spot between those two? Because of course we need, like we have the technologies and we might as well use technologies to draw down carbon if we can. But this place sourced, as Regenesis calls it, or this really sensitive to the biocultural uniqueness of places, I would have called it, how central do you see that way of working of people coming together in a transition town or in their bioregion to say, How do we do things differently? How do we learn from other examples out there? But how do we make what we do here not come out of our minds and preconceived notions of what this place wants, but actually have a deep conversation with this place, its history, its people, to create solutions that really bring life to the fore, like the, the, the Savodaya notion that Gandhi wrote about? If you live in a place, which we all do, but some people don't realize it, but if you live in a place and observe it, what you come to realize is that nothing repeats ever. Nothing in nature repeats itself. There's not an oak leaf in the world that's the same as the other, another oak leaf. And we were educated in empirical science, whereas if you couldn't repeat an experiment, it wasn't true. And it's just random, you know. We are educated in a world where the placebo effect is just, well, whatever, <laughs> instead of You should pay attention if the, if it's 30% placebo, what's, what's the mind body connection that you have, you know, trying to medicate. So I think that respect is so, so important in, in where we are. And that doesn't not speaking truth to power. That's respectful to me. That shows you care and that you care about whatever it is you're speaking truth to how we speak that. And the way we do that, so forth, is extremely important. So we don't create disconnections, you know, because we're profoundly disconnected already. I mean, that's, and the way you heal a system 
whether it's our immune system, an ecosystem, a social system, economic system. I mean, we know this scientifically, the way you heal any system is to connect more of it back to itself. So in a sense, when you, Daniel, when you talk about, you know, localization or, you know, that's what is happening there. The system is connecting itself instead of being the disconnected recipients of goods or food or this or transport or jobs or, you know, money and so forth. It's, that's what it's doing. And so I feel like the movement to restore life on earth, to regenerate life on earth has to be about regenerating our relationships too, you know, regenerating how we listen, you know, the most important organ on our faces is this one, you know, the ears. Is, is really, really listening to somebody. If somebody feels really listened to, it's a very different experience for them. And because they don't, most people don't, they're feeling cut off. And so the reason people are shouting, the reason their Twitters or tweets, the Twitter accounts, their tweets are getting more declarative and offensive is because they actually are showing that, that, that they don't feel heard. You know, but if you're not being heard, yelling doesn't help, but that's the tendency. So I, and people say this, we have to come together. We do have to come together. There's no question about it. But the question is, how does that work? How does that really happen? And I can't say as I know, it's something you practice, you know. See, this, this is maybe where I feel that this collective relearning about place is is one pathway to this coming together because you, you beautifully spoke about how we we're now being homeschooled by Gaia by by Mother Earth. We've learned so many abstract things about so many other places on the planet and about history and about this that and the other and comparing them. But there's this beautiful little book called Home, a bioregional reader, and in it there's a little quiz called the bioregional quiz, and it's some 24 questions about name three native grasses, name some birds and when they arrive and when they leave and just basic questions that anybody who pays attention to where they are to place would know. But actually, I can hold up my hand. I've known of this test for many, many years and I still live in a, on an island now for, for 10 years and I would not get the highest score on, on that test because we, we don't pay attention to what really matters. This reconnecting the system to itself, to understanding the things that truly matter about how are we in relationship? How are we being brought forth by this place? How is this place holding us rather than the other way around? We need to do this figure ground shift, you know, and that's to see and act in such a way that brings people together in a way that means meaningful to them, given who we are and what we are and what we see right now. So I feel like that's what all of our role is, you know, is to is to create those conditions. They could be, you know, conceptual, mental, spiritual, physical, nutrition, food, farming, so to create those conditions for people to organize in such a way that makes sense to them. And it's hard to do. It's not. It's not difficult to do. I don't mean it in that way, but I mean it's hard when you see the insanity of the world around you and the extraordinary pathologies that are expressing themselves politically and and culturally and economically but but you you know who you work for and you work for life you know and you work for the mo the mother you know the mothership <laughs> i say you're a good student in the homeschool <laughs> and you know and that's what brings you joy and that's what brings celebration 
and that is what regeneration offers to me. And I think you all agree and so forth, you know, it's a way of celebrating life, you know, and if we're going to live here and we only live here a short time, what are we going to do, you know, call into a hole or celebrate the life that's here. And then, as I say, at the very beginning of the book, you know, regeneration is putting life at the center of every act and decision. That's from an individual point of view. And that's what you do. And that's what you see. And so in your life is about creating more life and as opposed to being a, basically partaking in a system that's taking it. Yes, I think we're living through a pivotal moment in the history of our species. Change is all around us and meeting this challenge requires bravery, creativity and radical rethinking of our current systems. But together we can build a better future. And we've heard in this series that there are many ways into this collaboration through rethinking our economy, the way that we live and build from the community on our doorstep to the global communities that we interact with through business and governance. This regeneration rising is not about business as usual, but instead as a constellation of ideas, new and old, which is opening up avenues for new possibilities and what it means to be a human and to live a good life on this planet. Thank you again, Paul, and thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the final episode of our seven-part series, Regeneration Rising. Please check out the show notes for links and resources and to find out more about how you can be part of the regeneration.